When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. In the background to this conversation with Dijon, you'll hear some noise. Birds chirping, a helicopter overhead, the artist's dog scratching at his front door. In some sense, that's a happy accident. The Baltimore and Los Angeles-raised musician says that his debut album, Absolutely, is for the most part, quote, an abstracted interpretation of what making music feels like to me." End quote. It's an organic record dotted with beautiful imperfections, a combination of rapturous Americana and delicate soul, comprising dozens of small production and songwriting experiments. Those who listened to Dijon's music three years ago, after he split from his close friend and musical partner Abi and went solo for the first time, will recognize the Dijon of Absolutely. But the guardrails he installed around his work back then, in an apparent attempt to develop his own voice, have now been dismantled. His promising How Do You Feel About Getting Married EP, released 18 months ago, spotlit an artist ready to collaborate and, in some sense, let go. The process that grew out of that is on clear display in a live video for album opener Big Mics, recorded in a recreation of his LA living room with a full band, including Mike Gordon, better known as McGee, whose grooves underpin many of the songs here. That recording of Big Mike's is, like Absolutely itself, lucid and engrossing. I called Dijon to talk about the album a few hours before it was released. As you'll hear, he eventually let his dog run out into the yard. When this podcast comes out, uh, the record will have been out for six days. But as of right now, you've got what about 12 hours until it comes out how are you feeling yeah i feel i feel good i don't really know what you're supposed to feel i guess you know i think the idea of an album has changed quite a bit just try not to overthink it too much we live in like a very hyper immediate you know world so i think that the for me i've been kind of working i guess towards a full length thing probably my whole life or like you know since i started making music 14 years ago so in that way, it's a bit overwhelming, but you, you get like a different experience releasing music in this day and age. So it, it feels a little bit kind of complicated, I guess. For better or worse, it's not exactly what you might have imagined 12 years ago. I mean, I suppose 12 years ago, you also thought it might come out on CD or something. But beyond that, there's that difference between the expectation and reality, which it, it can be a little bit jarring sometimes. 100%. You know, I'm in, in between a generation where I guess... For me, like streaming didn't exist for me until maybe 2014, 2015. I just didn't have it and didn't have access to it. So at that time, I was like pretty deep into trying to make music as a thing. So, you know, I was still buying CDs or, you know, still torrenting full records. So that shift has been both extremely helpful because you can get to sort of publicly have like a sketchbook of ideas that come out. But at the same time, yeah, it's, it's kind of jarring because, you know, I feel like I'm just lucid enough to be like, okay, I made a record, but the entire landscape is is, is different. And um, yeah, 
just getting used to that, getting the, the land legs with it. With the album itself, I guess I wanted to start by talking about this um, this video you put up of, of Big Mike's, uh, of you performing it live uh, in what appears to be your living room. Is, is that your living room? <laughs> no. So I, I did a lot of the record in my house where I'm at right now, and then a big chunk of it in upstate New York. And I took maybe two or three photos while we were making the record. I didn't really consciously know we were doing an album. We had a few photos. My girlfriend had a few photos. We gave this to an amazing crew. And we were just like, let's just try to remake that living room. We wanted to see if we could like start having a new conversation visually. Because we live in this pretty insane and kind of, to me, really illogical musical landscape. We thought it would be kind of interesting if, as the record was being shaped, how do you also engage visually with some of the themes of the record. Yeah, it's a ridiculous task to try to recreate the room that I made the record in, but we kind of thought that that was maybe the next logical step of what you know music and, and visuals and, and how those things meet should be. It's like this, this constant overlap that's like out of time, especially because if you're a first time listener, you have no clue. And there's probably not really any reason for you to, to care about the process of the record. So we were just trying to find ways to emphasize, even if it was fabricated, the creation of music, if that makes any sense. Because right now you're, you're hyper inundated all the time with content to the point where it's so abstracted that I think it's oftentimes forgotten that humans do it. Humans are behind it. Yeah, I think you used the word overlapping as, as a way of describing this, this process. What, what do you mean by that? So I have like a philosophy with how I make music that I've been working on for quite some time. I'm not much of a refiner. I, I don't believe in it. I think that it's just not my thing and it's not my specialty. So I had done so much of this music in short bursts with friends that you know I'll talk about and, and shout out as we proceed. But I'd done these things in like one takes. And there were a couple of like moments of, oh, that's kind of crazy. Let's pull that down or something. But um, these songs are kind of marinating and the philosophy was sort of developing post music. It was like post song. So when we decided to do this visual, it just it came from a conversation from like suits. And I'm using that term both affectionately and uh, pejoratively. But the suits, you know, they, they immediately you, you show them something and they go, well, what is it? What's it look like? What's the thing look like? I don't think like that. I just don't think about music like that. I'm personally pretty over performance videos. I'm over people lip syncing for content. It makes no sense to me. So we were like, well, we're not going to shoot a video for it for any song on the record. And I probably won't ever do that. So the overlap idea came from like, well, these, this music's been done. Is there a world where you can sort of reinterpret it and reimagine it post us kind of digesting these, these, these songs for, for months and sort of engage with it as if you didn't make them yet, as if like they were just like fledgling ideas. Like, how do you overlap? Like to me, the Big Mike's version that everybody's heard now isn't as sensual or like spontaneous as the one that's on the record. But I think it might be better. And I think that we were trying to engage with that, where it's like, how do you not treat music so linearly? How do you overlap the processes to the point where I'm giving you two versions of a record? One was extremely meticulously thought about, which is the live one. And one was completely random, which is the, the record version. And uh, just how do you engage with that? I don't have any answers for it, but it's more of just like, what, what conversation can this start? You know, um, maybe none. I don't know. But that was kind of the goal, you know. You use that word spontaneity, which is the first thing that jumped out from that video, but also from the album as a whole. I mean, you recorded this in a pretty short space of time, the whole, the whole project, right? And was the writing process equally short? No, I think that um, 
So when the pandemic hit, I was like kind of working on a record. That EP, How Do You Feel About Getting Married, that I, I dropped was more in the effort of like, admittedly, just kind of like, well, if it were up to me, I would spend years without making music or whatever, but it's not sustainable. So I, I put that out, but I was kind of like processing a lot of the music for a long time, but I don't do demos or anything like that. I, I, I just sit there and I just think about music for as long as I possibly can. So the writing process, if you can call it that, like internally was, was pretty long. I mean, I'd say it's over two years, but the actual recording of it was instant. Like once we started making music, I started off with the second song on the record, Scratching. That was the first thing I did while I was trying to teach myself piano. And everything else kind of came out in like another month or two, just with some travel. And yeah, and just a lot of like little words or whatever that I would be internalizing over the course of like two years. They started coming out in freestyles. And I think the philosophy, like the overall sound of the record, I've been chipping away at for a very long time, which is just, you know, I think contemporary version of a like live record. Again, sort of engaging with the idea of the, the live video. Like, you don't really know what's really happening. I've been working on that sort of idea for a long time where it's like one take things, maybe, all the room uh, being recorded at once. That philosophy has been kind of in, in, in the working stages since I started making music under this project. And now I'm completely over it. <laughs> <laughs> you said something there. You said, you said you would go years without making music if that was an option, but it's not sustainable. It's rare to hear a musician talk like that i suppose the question is why what why would what would you do if you weren't do you do you find it sort of burdensome to be on that conveyor belt i spent a lot of time in school and i spent a lot of time working the transition that i had from being able to make music full time so it doesn't really set in and it's not the most pleasant world to live in for me i think i would just rather do you know anything else just cuz i do think it's quite just personally disrespectful to the the craft into like the magic that's music just to make it. That's just my own personal thing. I know so many, so many people I admire and like really look up to and, and get excited, inspired by who constantly make music. It's an amazing world. It's just not for me. I just think that in service of like what I'm trying to do, it, it just unfortunately for me requires a lot more time. You know, I'm not like a musician by trade. I'm, I'm still learning how to play instruments and, and all these things. So I think that that data just takes a while to, to set in and, and kind of marinate. So I'd rather just like have a job or something sometimes, sometimes, you know. You've spoken a little bit in the past about really wanting Dijon to be distinctly yours, to sort of put walls up around it. Why did you feel that in the first place and what changed in the, like just before the DP? I think there's a little bit of resentment and some sort of guilt that I had trying to make music in the first place. I don't, I think that a lot of people can relate to that. It's just something that feels kind of weird. I mean, we live in a really weird zone. I went to school to teach. There's always this like resentment. And so I always thought that it was supposed to be like, I've earned a thing. So I, w I closed off a lot of stuff. I wanted to make sure that it was like, well, you, you earned it. Whatever you do, if it works, it works. And if it does work, you did it. Nobody can take credit for it. And I do think that there's a, a sanctity to, to being able to make music. And I hit a wall around how do you feel about getting married where it just wasn't as fun. I think I have a really objective take on my music and music in general. That's just like where I came from and, and it's how I digest music. And I just don't think that my music at that point was kind of like fulfilling its potential. And I started to realize like, yeah, I mean, there's moments where I want to explore that zone and I just don't have the vocabulary for it. So I had to humble myself a little bit and try to open it up a little bit, but it wasn't as conscious. I mean, I guess the whole thing was when I met 
my buddy Mike, who goes under, uh, makes music under McGee, when he showed up, it was a very random coincidence. He showed up and we did Big Mike's together uh, pretty much instantly. Okay, well, I might drop to my knees and That's when I was like, well, he has a like a language and a vocabulary that I just don't have. And suddenly the confidence that I felt exploring myself like vocally became a little bit more obvious. You know, it, it was more like if I'm just doing everything myself, which I was doing for the most part before, you get stuck in like a like a almost like a treadmill of like your tropes. And the moment somebody else's language is injected in what I was doing, suddenly there was a new door. There was also this weird feedback system where like we didn't really know each other that well, so we're kind of almost competing in the room together. And I just realized immediately, like, not only is this person inspiring a lot of new ideas, but they're pushing out like a different edge that I always, in the back of my mind, was like, this Dijon project, it, it can be better than what it is. And when we started having this like sort of competitive edge and sort of like constantly trying to excite each other in a room, I can still pilot this album every single moment, every like detail of it doesn't have to be my fingerprint. And suddenly it's just like, oh, I can like also now my brain power isn't wasted on this chord progression right here. I can just like freak out or like try a new character, try a new thing. And it started to become a little bit more exciting in that way. And that's what happens, I think. And that's why it opened up. I mean, it's pretty organic. I'm also a huge shit talker. I'm like a huge like critic of, of music. So you start to realize like, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is. And the only way you can expand your ideas is if other people are involved to a degree. It's more like a pride thing. I can't talk shit if I can't back it up. And I can only back it up if like if more people are involved. Um, and that's kind of the main reason that it kind of expanded, you know. I think that there's still like a pretty distinct fingerprint that I have on, on, on this record. Only because of certain choices that I know people wouldn't make or wouldn't want to make. And uh, you get more confident and those choices when other people around you holding certain things down and encouraging that sort of exploration, you know. I wonder if one of the reasons that you felt more comfortable allowing people in the Dijon project, you said you didn't want your fingerprints, or you didn't feel the need to have your fingerprints all over everything anymore, but maybe to some extent you'd built enough of a vocabulary yourself within this project that it, it felt like if you invited people in, they wouldn't necessarily alter it, they would just improve it. Yeah, I think that that's some, subconsciously somewhere where I was at. Like, I did scratching. I thought, you know, there's a really cool world where I haven't heard somebody plot away on like a MIDI keyboard trying to make like the simplest chord progression of all time. And I was like, you know, that's my my style. But there were moments where it's like, yeah, my, maybe my idea or my voice or my cadences that I wanted to explore can only exist with a new language. And yeah, I do think, I mean, I'm, I'm extremely indebted, especially to Mike, for how he didn't try to, like, you know, he had an amazing opinions and his spirit is all over this record but there was also this like built-in trust that made me more confident where he was like no just like rock that idea over but what about this what if the pocket's different and it's like yeah 
right? It sounds good to me. You know, like something like Big Mike's, it's like sort of meditative and hypnotic ode to R&B. To me, like the end of R&B in my mind. Uh, that doesn't exist without his very bizarre phrasing where I could then get a little bit more repetitive and cyclical with how I was singing. And I've been trying to do stuff like that and I just didn't have some of the, just, I didn't have that touch myself. And it just, I think it helped open up my world a little bit more for sure. I think that somewhere subconsciously that was happening and I was engaging with it. There you go again, head low, putting on a showcase. It's the holidays, how come it always ends this way? Can't take that pressure off you just to put it on me Talking to your friends on the phone Airing our dirty laundry with strawberry, raspberry Candlelight, satellite, television, x-ray vision What's it gonna take for you to listen? Well, you can change your mind now But you can't change your decision You can change your mind now But you can't change your decision Cause I, I don't really wanna talk about it It seems that very much true of like many times as well which you know you've got that that syncopation which you can tell with your phrasing at the beginning of that so that could split off in any different direction but it seems like mike's influence on that was quite strong oh 100 percent. i mean that song was started his drum pass is what what started it um testament to sarlo too i mean we we, we laid down so many crazy things <clears throat> on top of what was already a pretty hectic and manic bed and I didn't start writing until Sarlo rearranged parts and took things out. And I never trusted anybody with that before in my life. And it opened up so much and I was able so quickly and so easily to like engage with the world. That was th that. Was that. I and mean, it, it came out of me pretty, pretty naturally because yeah, there was just a whole new, you know, groove that I'd always wanted to rock on. I'd always wanted to like, you know, that, that song is loosely a tribute to post-punk stuff, just like thrown in a garbage bin. You know, I've always wanted to engage with like this rambling kind of thing that doesn't really have to have any particular arc or meaning, but never really had the skill set to do it. I mean, I was, I was always kind of making very linear replications of that kind of stuff, you know, like Life Without Buildings and things like that, things that friends have shown me. Always super excited by the looseness, like the non sequiturs, and, but it wasn't until, yeah, it, something just clicked when, you know, you hear like this insane drum pattern that I would have just never been able to make just wouldn't have done it and there's like a humility that comes with this too that I think allowed the music to be a little bit more me when you finally start to humble yourself and stop being so angry all the time you know you start to find what excites you which I think is very key to this album it's a very selfish album you know in that way I'm interested in your lyrical approach here you know you said in an interview a while back you've talked about wanting to bring some of what you love about short story writing into your music for a start, like, who who are the short story writers that that you particularly admire and that you want to carry with you? I am pretty limited. I don't have the greatest vocabulary with writing, even though that was like my focus in school. But the stuff that I always really was obsessed with was like Raymond Carver and Anne Prohl, and you know, pretty recently I was really into like Tenth of December, George Saunders, very like uniquely American kinds of things. But never really in like content, more in uh, attitude. I just read, uh, what's that guy, Dennis Johnson, Jesus' Son. I was reading those short stories. And there's this like crassness to how they write. There's like a simplicity, but also a, a like a, almost a violence to how they write that, again, it's, it's less content based, but I just was really obsessed with 
just the way that their words interact and typically very simple, very simple, just perfect choices all, always. These people like, they only write the, the right thing, if that makes any sense. And that's just something that I've always wanted to take from it. I find it a little bit easier to pull from like prose sometimes, just because there's just ex the, the particular interaction with words that I want doesn't happen often enough in like the music I love. But there's some pretty odd ones musically that, that have really influenced me. Like the obvious would be like, you know, like Ghostface and uh, Raekwon. They collide words in a way that is very, very provocative to me. Um, and I think about them all the time. Cameron did an amazing job with that too. It's not just fun to listen to, but it's like, it's just like insane. But there's other stuff too, like Panda Bear, I actually think has influenced the way I write a lot in its simplicity. You know that song, Daily Routine? on Animal Collective's Meriwether Post Pavilion. Just little ways of like engaging with simple objects in a sp specific tempo, like a, like, a, like a time thing, really evokes mood a lot to me. And yeah, so I just try to pull from those things. Like Adrian Lenker is, I think, the best living songwriter. Um, Joni Mitchell, obviously. And just those things really were just like the, you know, you, you only find them pretty rarely, but short stories to me had, had a lot of that same engagement, just with no rhythm and no melody, but it makes it a little bit easier to, to, to find out what you like about it, you know, when you're not distracted by sound, I guess. There's a sense in these songs, lyrically, I mean, obviously the lyrics have to work with the spontaneity of the music to some extent, but there's also, you leave a lot of detail in these songs, but remove, I suppose, a lot of narrative. So you're keeping in these things that feel quite specific for you, but it feels like you're trying to reach for a sort of universality with your listener is that a conscious decision that you want to try and make these stories accessible no it comes more from like i'm still finding my footing as a writer like i, I still i wouldn't be confident writing without music right now as, as tender as i think hyper specificity in like a lyrical world can be for people especially people who are really good at it just to me it's more of like I'm just developing my, my style and like refining my taste because if I give you some sort of exposition, I'm just not qualified as a writer to do it in a way that's meaningful. And I, then I start to waste precious music time to me. So I'm just trying to find ways to in incorporate a specific detail that creates an image for me that I can then continue to write. If I'd like start off like some sort of actual world, I just would, I, I just don't think that I would ever get anything done because I'm just not, I'm not accomplished enough as a writer to do that. And I think my only skill set is like recognizing that for me. Like I can find like a, a tempo of, of detail and just know what to omit before like the actual song gets very clumsy. And you know, I've just been trying to work on that for a while. You know, I'm fascinated with like abstraction too because yeah. it's a little bit easier to, to gain some sort of some meaning. So in that way, it's supposed to be universal, I guess, but you know, it's mostly just like a crutch. <laughs> it's mostly a, a well thought out crutch just because it's, it's tough, you know, it's tough to give you a time and a place. It, it, I just don't have that, that skill. Some people can though. Joni Mitchell really could. She can give you a time and place. I can't. Prince couldn't either. And Helen is a good dancer. She can move just like she's hex. Like to watch you spin around and round Sweat dripping down the neck And I do quite a lot Imagining things sometimes 
mean, God and Wilson seems to be a pretty good example of this, of these details appearing. They're details, but they're not specific, if that makes sense. They're not there for uh, as like a narrative device as much as an emotional device. I mean, God and Wilson's an interesting one because I wasn't going to put it on the record. And, you know, in the effort of trying to make a debut record, your brain immediately jumps to like, how do you make the most flawless record? And to me, that is the most flawed song in the record because there's a specific theme throughout the album that's kind of just for me. And God and Wilson is a bit too on it. You know what I mean? And I just don't think, you know, when I listened back, I was like, ah, I didn't, I don't think I nailed that. But that's what I was trying to do is like trying to engage with a specific theme. You know, there's like hatred and there's shame and there's like repression in that song. I kept it on there because I was like, I got to have some sort of landmark for where I'm supposed, like what I want to actually do. I think God and Wilson as like a songwriter is where I'm like trying to go that I haven't quite gotten yet. Well, the rest of the record is more of like a abstracted interpretation of what making music feels like to me but god wilson is like the flawed you know this is if i could that would have been a perfect it would be a perfect version of that song somewhere that i don't think i've tapped into yet but yeah that was like the only one on the record too that i think wasn't immediately pulled from some sort of actual person that i know or a, a moment that i've experienced which is i think why i'm more sensitive to it you know Cause it's like you try to tell a little story and eh, I don't know if it works, but that was like very much like some weird half-assed uh, Flannery O'Connor tribute kind of thing. Like this sort of like raving preacher vibe. Still trying to refine that, that aspect of it. And, and those were nods to some sort of repression or sexuality or deep shame just through like little phrases, you know? Um, and it doesn't have to be about me. That was like definitely the one, uh, attempt that i had on that on the, on the record you know one thing that you said which i was quite surprised by you there was this sort of anger or disappointment or frustration with life on on tour i'm not surprised to hear that because i don't think that people feel that it seems inevitable that touring would be exhausting and and would deplete you but it's not often you hear people being quite so honest about it you said recently that you couldn't quite pinpoint what it was that you used the word hate that you hated it but you couldn't quite pinpoint what it was are you any closer to pinpointing that? I, I, I've pinpointed a little bit, but but it, it would sound too accusatory if I if I articulated how like I feel about it. Um, oh, I guess it's okay to sound accusatory. It's fine. I just don't understand what people like expect when you when you play a show. I think that my music is quite you know flaws and all is quite personal, and it felt like a little absurd to to do that over and over again. Like the. the the, the performative aspect of it just isn't something that I've wrapped my head around yet. And, you know, hopefully I get better at it because there is some sort of joy that I do find in like singing, I guess, sometimes. But the hatred I felt was more like, uh, I don't know, it doesn't really feel like there's many stakes. If it doesn't sound bad, it's like it doesn't really matter. And I can't quite dig it. I can't quite get down with like, what are you supposed to engage with when I perform these songs and if you've heard these songs and i'm super grateful for people who have what like what am i supposed to give you i don't really know and i guess that's like the confusing thing i i so i still haven't quite pinned it pinpointed down but something feels strange about it and this record is clearly like definitely for me clearly a reaction to the mess that's made musically and just trying to like close the gap a little bit where it's like you can make a decision if you enjoy this world at all and i don't think i was giving people that choice before you can i can hide behind tucked vocals and and some sort of angst that allows like it to feel like more niche i guess 
And after touring, I was like, well, I guess I have to make a record that's like truly exactly how I hear music all the time, warts and all, because maybe it'll clarify when I'm back on tour why I'm there, as opposed to like suddenly being plopped on a stage and singing songs that you wrote like years before, trying to like milk some sort of reaction to your music. It's like, well, maybe if people actually hear how I am making music, at least at this stage, then uh, I have like a human locked in there. Now my dog is trying to break out of her, <laughs> the door. I thought it might um, be that. But yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's a tough, it's a tough world and I haven't quite figured it out yet. And it might just also be like a weird imposter syndrome thing where it's like, I get so overwhelmed with the idea of playing shows because it's very difficult to understand when you're so distant from the consumption of the music that you make. It's difficult to understand why people would be there. So there's a, a graciousness that I think informs the hatred too. I just don't think I know how to react to that yet. It it's, feels unearned in a weird way, but I'm grateful. Yes. It's so rare that people discuss it in, in that way. I mean, when you strip it of the sort of tradition of you make an album and you go out on tour and all that stuff. Yeah, well, maybe it's because it, I sound so miserable saying it. I'm really not, but I'm just being honest about like what what freaks me out about, I guess, making music, you know? It's a true blessing to be able to do it. I'd, I'd be a real asshole if I wasn't questioning it. You know, there's some questions that I have about it that have not been answered yet. I also just love music. I respect it so much. And it's like, there's a lot of self-deprecation because it's like, ah, you watch like D'Angelo perform and you're like, man, I'm not there yet. So why would anybody care about <laughs> what I'm doing? Okay, so tell me what your ideal, I, I guess a five year span, but like if you could draw a creative process up as a musician, that say whatever happens, a hundred grand a year is going into your bank account, whatever you pick, whether you release an EP every week for a year, or if you decide to just go walking in the woods for a while, what would it look like to you? You know, my ideal layout, honestly, would just be the music that I'm trying to make right now for all of its like spontaneity and like improvisation. I talk to Mike about this a lot because, you know, he helped me build this world. It's not an accident. Uh, there is just something that I want to hear with music. So like my ideal world would be a little bit more um, accessible. So people who are maybe more qualified, like either vocally or rhythmically or you know, lyrically, that they could kind of like open up musically as well. So my ideal world would be like, I would love to work with other people. I would love to like get like Ariana Grande in a room and just set up like a room mic and hear her interpretation of, you know, what I think we were trying to do is create a new world of like truly, it's give, like the music is just there now. It just exists. For you. There's a couple of moments where that's not the case, but for the most part, it's just there. In the next five years, I would just I would love to just, you know, hone this sound a little bit more and and strip some of the linearity from other music that I actually really love. You know, like I would love to engage in the pop world with some of the more messy, far out sonic choices, because I just don't see the difference when I hear like we were I think many times was on like New Music Friday, which I guess is like the pinnacle of all things now. And sonically, what it was up against was just so insane to me, like same drum pack same like master bus thing and it's like rendering a lot of these ideas that i think were pretty remarkable in like the pop space it's rendering them pretty homogenous and that's what i'd like, like to see in five years is like hopefully having some sort of ability to at least take a stab at other things that kind of take me out of my comfort zone but like maybe putting different 
spin or a fingerprint or like pulling out different versions of songwriting for people. You know, Kanye does it pretty amazingly. It's a huge sort of subconscious influence. But my favorite thing, and a lot of people criticize it, my favorite thing that Kanye has done post-Yeezus is how he's clearly like not finishing songs and they can still engage with a huge audience. He's like mumbling on like 90% of the music now. But there's this like, he understands the efficiency of like the mood, if that makes any sense. Like dropping like really blown out phone recording demos, but on a gigantic scale. I mean, that's just the dream. It's just my trajectory, you know, continue to make music, hopefully get a space where I can like save my project for more personalized ideas, but just engage with other scopes. You know, I, I just want to get in a room with the, anybody who would have me who would be willing to be like, yeah, let's just try for like five days. What happens if it sounds like this? What happens if like there is phone recorded pedal steel in the hook or something? And what happens if you're not double tracked and you're not melodyne? It sounds like you're 40 feet away from a microphone, but people feel it and they feel a new side of your music now or a new side of your personality. That's like, that's kind of the goal to try like more wonky shit too. You know, I really want to make rap records, but just make them sound a little bit more minimal and, and fuzzy. That would be my ideal path. And I would do it for free. Well, DJ, I've, I've taken up an hour of your afternoon, but this was a really great chat. Oh, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm a rambler. Well, I appreciate you so much for having me. Honestly, thank you. Hey, of course. Thanks for doing this. And uh, congratulations on the record and have a good Thursday. Okay, take care. That was Dijon talking to the fader. Dijon's new album, Absolutely, is out now via r Digital and Warner Records. Our engineer is Tony Giambroni, and our associate producer is Salvatore Mackey. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. Remember to follow the Fader interview wherever you listen to podcasts and keep an eye on thefader.com for exclusive music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Fader interview. Goodbye until then.